0: Everything that happens to you becomes a part of your life and you must choose to live your life on your terms and be the best you can be every step of the way.
1: This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Matthew Zachary has a beat with
2: how Silicon Valley thinks about healthcare. care. He thinks entrepreneurs don't build the right things for patients. They have too much of an if-they-build-it-they-will-come attitude. And he thinks investors don't care enough to invest in the right things most of the time. This is going to be fun.
1: This is Tectonics. I'm David Shewitz.
2: And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat, Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. So, David.
1: Yes, Lisa. Uh,
2: our guest today has interviewed literally thousands of people. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, we have not <laughs> gotten that far, maybe a couple hundred, um, but which one has been most memorable to you in our in our?
1: Long well, you know, um, I think we've had so many outstanding discussions, you know, I don't know if to prioritize one or the other, but two that really stick out for me was actually a recent conversation with uh, Jill Hagencourts about her incredible journey. And I also, of course, really like Jeff Claps when he returned to the show after initially talking about what he was trying to do and then having the really candid discussion with us you know, kind of like the post-mortem going over, like, what didn't go right the initial time. And I thought that was especially brave and really a fantastic conversation and give him so much props for that.
2: Yeah, I agree. Although I have to say, it's always for me like the last one is my favorite. They're always, you know, (laughs) interesting as they they envelop each other. So Matthew Zachary, who we're going to talk to today, has had multiple careers despite the fact that he shouldn't have had any. He'd studied to be a concert pianist and a composer and conductor through Uh college. On his way to study in a graduate music program with Hans Zimmer at USC, the age of 21, he was diagnosed with a rare brain cancer and told he had six months to live. That was in 1995. And Matthew, it is so great that you're here to tell us the tale
0: today. Someone keeps telling me I'm still here, I'm going to listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> the a pleasure to be here.
2: Matt, um, you credit your uncle, a geneticist, with helping you save your life and your ability to play piano. And also that you credit yourself for having the chutzpah to challenge established treatment. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, so this is the fabulous through-thread that I sit atop my, my soapbox, not de jour, my, my soapbox ad nauseum, is, <laughs> is that you, you have you, you should have a freedom – and a basic liberty to know what the hell you're getting yourself into when bad things happen to you, because you're not expecting to be there, and it's not something you can pre-research in advance. In my case, despite it being 25 years ago, I was a kid playing piano. I had dreams of being a concert pianist, and I got brain cancer, and they wanted to give me chemotherapy, which normally, of course, sure, please save my life. One might presume that should be the way you would should think about cell preservation. I just happened to have a godfather, my uncle, who was a geneticist. Not everyone has a geneticist godfather when they get cancer. And he happened to question what they were going to put in my body. And he figured out that I'd rather not have this chemotherapy because it meant I'd never play again. So, could you imagine being an uncle telling your twenty-two-year-old godson that you don't want you'd rather die in five years and maybe play piano again than live eighty and never play piano again? That's what that came down to. I happened to have this guy. I got very lucky. I credit him for my ability to just live, but live on my terms. Not knowing if I would be here five years later, I'm here twenty-five years later, and I play piano. Yeah. So that's my argument. Yeah. Is that it, it's everyone be nice to say everyone should have a geneticist uncle when they get sick, but that's not the case.
2: Or a medical Sherpa, as you also kind of referred to it. And I think, you know, many companies are trying to do this or many organizations are trying to do this for people. Are you seeing it exist in the world today, this medical Sherpa concept in any kind of useful way?
0: You know, we used to call that like uh, consumer intervention, right? Like anti-smoking and... The the pill dispensers that that robotically tell you to take your pills. But at the end of the day, people don't want to know that they're sick. No one wants to wake up every day and be reminded, oh, my God, I'm dealing with crap I don't want to deal with. I might be dead. What What do I do? They want life hacks. They want peer support. But they want the delivery of those life hacks through their communities and not shoved down their throats by Facebook ads. And that's the big, that's the 2020 way of telling people you need this to do this and stop doing that. And when you're facing specifically in ecology, a life-threatening situation, and all you care about is getting your kids to school or taking care of your, paying your mortgage or getting back to work, whatever your daily life interrupted has become, how do you penetrate that market? How do you get to that single person with a message they're going to listen to and understand on their terms? And I won't say writ large. I don't paint with a giant brush, but in my experience, over twenty years in patient advocacy, running a nonprofit, working for Google, doing all the things in health tech, no one has it nailed down on cancer on how to get the right thing to the right person at the consumer level.
2: So you, you know, there are many companies that have out that out there, and I know we're going to eventually get to your. Uh your deeply uh, held feelings about entrepreneurial uh, activity and, and, and investors, but um, there are many companies that have tried, including one called Sherpa, you know, um, right. to help be like ombudsman for, for patients, you know, right. um, do you think there's any way to do that from a, and especially can it be done from a for-profit company? Is it possible to make that product work?
0: So I'm going to channel one of my mentors, uh, Dan palata I hope your listeners can Google him. Dan Palotta is, in my mind, the father of what's wrong with the nonprofit sector from the perspective of what are the limitations as a business it can and can't do and public perceptions of what it should and shouldn't do in terms of scaling and risk modeling and investing and boards of directors and compensation, the limitations between how people trust different community brands in the nonprofit sector versus what the private sector can do that the charities can't has always been this oil and vinegar relationship that has just penetrated and perturbed the entire sector. Help us understand what you mean
1: by that because I'm not sure I get it.
0: Okay, so I'll use my example because that's just what I can tell you. So I ran an organization, I founded it called Stupid Cancer, its primary mission was to educate and empower young adults affected by cancer and their family members and caregivers, and to drive policies and affect research and create basically a national social conversation around the disparities that when you're 8 or 80 is different than when you're 16 to 40. Fertility, jobs, life, insurance, family planning, all the stuff that sucks when you're well gets worse when you're sick. That's what stupid cancer was. And because I was a radio show host with that, and because we were very Gen X driven and very disruptive and ran it like an agency, a lot of these companies that were starting these products or services for cancer patients that couldn't get to the doctors because they're not FDA cleared, they're sort of consumer or device or, or a 510K programs or whatever devices and FDA whatever, they said, hey, you have a million people in your mailing list, you should tell these people about this amazing thing because they should know about it. And I said, you know what? You're right. They should know about it. Now pay me to tell them. And they said, why? You're a charity. Shouldn't you just do that because it's your mission? I said, no, we have a million people because we're a charity and because people like you give us money to tell these people these things. So there's this giant misunderstanding about what nonprofits are capable of doing, how they've been able to accomplish what they've been accomplished, why they're perceived as the directing consumer avenues for all these things coming out of wherever and at the same time there's no conversation around i should compensate them for their ability to introduce me to these communities who may want my product because to your point before the private sector doesn't carry a lot of weight when you're dying from cancer no one wants to buy something or be told you need to buy this everything is entitled and i say that word with love because you didn't ask to be there and it doesn't mean we should pay your mortgage and do these things. It means that how can we make this suck less to get you through it to get your life back together? And that doesn't mean being poached on. That doesn't mean being shown, oh, the you know, Chevy is going to you know, sell 40 Corvettes to these people and all the money raised goes to this or the pink M&Ms do these things. We don't want to hear that stuff. And the private sector is capable of raising tons of money and monetizing and getting investor dollars. And the nonprofit sector isn't. And yet the nonprofit sector is where all the patients are to be told about the stuff the private sector wants to bring to market. That's the are Reese's there, peanut butter cup that has never connected.
1: All right. Well, are there examples of, though, of some nonprofit slash foundations that seem to have been successful at this interface? I think particularly not in oncology, say, but organizations like the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation, which really helped drive um, the development of drugs for those patients. Um, Michael and other Foundation. places. Right, yeah. Michael J. Fox Foundation. Pancreatic the Cancer star.
0: Foundation is done miracles. Yeah. Las Foundation, yeah, for sure. But you're talking right. research. I'm talking lifestyle. They're, they're, they're not apples to apples. They're not concentric. They're not exclusive to each other. I was thinking but,
1: JDRF as well. That's
0: right. Yeah, JDRF is research. They're not community. It's a lifestyle. How do you get through this? But Now, you, now you're, you're creating an interesting conversation between chronic disease, rare disease, and oncology. And there really shouldn't be a Hatfield-McCoy line, you know, a Mason-Dixon line. But there kind of is because we want a finish line when you're dealing with cancer. But is there you're one? I mean, with, isn't yeah. it
2: true that, for, especially if you have pediatric cancer, that it really kind of becomes a chronic disease for you? You really have to think about it, and it has impact perhaps for your whole life.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting thing to talk about, maybe for an entirely separate show, but the, the, the long story short on that is once they started realizing most kids weren't dying from cancer anymore, and I say that with love because plenty still do, and it, not a single one is is bad, they have 70 years of life to live with all these consequences of, of surviving. So what are they entitled to to get by when they have secondary cancers or or cardiomyopathy or osteopenia or diabetes or a stroke, all these things that you just you're lucky to be alive? I mean, I'm a Jenga puzzle. I don't know how I'm alive with all the things that are wrong with me because I got to live 25 years ago. But you're looking at, at, at um, you know, Parkinson's is, is degenerative. You know there's an end. What can we do to make your life better? How can research prolong the quality of your life knowing that this is there? And maybe one day we'll find a point where this won't kill you and you'll live with it like type 1 diabetes or lupus or fibromyalgia. Degenerative diseases and the rare diseases – it's not a competition against oncology. It comes down to what does that consumer need when bad things happen to them and how are they approached by products and services that can help them live their lives better.
2: Matt, you were um, really in recovery for 10 years or had you know, been 10 years post your diagnosis when you founded Stupid Cancer. What was the catalyst for that?
0: I think it was that I never realized how alone I was until I met somebody who had my cancer and was around my age. And that gestalt moment of how the hell could I have gone seven years in New York City getting treated at NYU and Sloan Kettering and never having met another person that wouldn't judge me and understood all the things inside my head that while I love my family and friends and my college buddies and my high school buddies, no one really understood that. That's a nodding head thing. Everyone has that one thing that no one understands but them or someone like them. And then I realized I finally had a chance to make what happened to me suck less for someone else like me. And I never had that moment of clarity to realize I can do this now. And that's what got me into the how the hell and why the hell that I started a charity. I started a charity with the intent of making things suck less for the next me.
1: My sense is a lot of people find those types of communities on Facebook or other social media, particularly Facebook. Is that a viable solution to this connectivity problem that you're describing
0: i mean i speak on behalf of the community that i built which are aging gen xers and millennials i'm 46 now i started this when i was 30 so i feel like the audience i speak to are 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 that audience and we don't use facebook our kids our younger siblings we don't use facebook we might have used facebook 10 years ago when it was brand new and barack obama had it. and oh this is cool let's figure out what this does but these days i'm finding out that and there's a lot of data to back this up i think our mutual friend Susanna fox would agree to this that peer-to-peer at any age is really driving more decision making for life hacking and enduring with style as i would say than platforms that exist although platforms that exist have to an extent, and people have their own over-under on where Facebook lives in the ether of of where history will define it in twenty years. Pages like um, uh, BetterHelp or um, the Mighty, or um, they're similar in that vein. Yes, they're private sector. Yes, they're private sector. Yes, they're for-profit, but they become these incredibly welly well well-attuned self-policing ecosystems that have met it out. When the flower sifts, we have these now. And people are willing to pay for them because they see value in them. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, when the product's free, you're the product.
2: (laughs) So you taught yourself along the way, um, web design and, you know, social media types of technologies and, and podcasting among other things. And you had um, started the first healthcare radio show, effectively, 14 years ago or so. I interviewed thousands of people in, in health tech. But then you yourself were the first speaker and piano player, I should add, at the inaugural sure. Health 2.0 Conference. What's it like seeing health tech now have its moment? I mean, it is a long time coming, right? And um, all of a sudden, digital health is a thing. And, and back at that time, it was kind of a nothing. I mean, that first that first Health 2.0 Conference was like El in the garage, you know?
0: Yeah, that was pretty much the uh, the Jobs Wozniak house <laughs> 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 when that when that happened in San Francisco. Yeah, it was an honor to be involved with that, and, and I've I've been I've been living almost a a, a dual career path, you know, uh, for for the last fifteen years, working in with people that splintered out from the health to Google universe into what is today, you know, considered digital health. And I ran the nonprofit route as well, understanding patient advocacy and beltway politics and and laws and and, and all sorts of consumer protection influence. It's amazing to see how these things have come together. Health tech has always had its moment. It's just been about user adoption. And I, I just did an interview where I talked about how it took this country, at least this country, a good decade to trust eBay and PayPal and Amazon. To even believe it was possible that they wouldn't steal your life by buying, you know, uh, baby powder on the well, internet. they not steal your life.
2: You just need the baby powder. Yeah, Exactly.
0: <laughs> But at at the end of the day, now we find – I mean, I think COVID has forced the adoption to the extent that we can have like telehealth, telemedicine, home devices, uh, better online ways to save time and efficiencies And when you're sick. I'd rather not have to schlep to the hospital. Oral parity is up now because they don't want people going in for chemo. So there are odd, weird benefits of understanding the value of distance and digital to make your life a little easier. But again, this goes back to delivery of products and services that are not necessarily coming from the doctor. Because at the end of the day, yeah, the doctor prescribes. But if it's a home health device or some adjacent lifestyle product or whatever it is, what is directing consumer in digital health to market? Who's the market? Who's the audience? How do you get there? It doesn't work. It's not like Pepsi can say we have a new, it's Crystal Pepsi 2.0. Come on, let's go get it (laughs) over here as the advertising. There's no such thing as that in oncology and in, in cancer care. How do you find out about things is going to go back to Susanna Fox. My strong belief is that most Americans of all races, creeds, colors, communities, genders, uh, income inequality, whatever it is, they're finding information out through their tribe, through their community, because that's who they trust the most. And the nonprofits in that space and the churches in that space and the religious institutions in that space are where people find and commune to figure out how to make the best of bad things
2: so have you seen examples of entrepreneurs in particular large or small um figure out how to balance between their traditional way of doing things and really properly and effectively accessing this peer-to-peer world
0: uh Pell pack for sure hands down absolutely what their approach um, and I met TJ many – chat uh, out to TJ Parker. I met him years ago in Cambridge, and he had this idea. Like, I'm an agri-pharmacist. What the hell – what stupid pharmacy? <laughs> and here he is coming to market with this this commercial product, which completely upended traditional pharmacy relationships, made everything digital online. They they got every, all 50 states. They could prescribe in all 50 states. That was miraculous to get that done. But they bought – they didn't buy they approached it knowing that someone like me was the end user and not the pharmacist being the end user, not my doctor saying, you need to go on this pill. My doctor now knows, and i am God got so many pills because of the aforementioned Jenga puzzle that is myself, as with many people, how do I manage and navigate the insanity of pills I have to take just to stay alive, and I'm lucky to be alive to take these pills. Their approach, their go-to-market was fantastic. Another one is GoodRx. But yeah. I love market. both again, of those. Yeah, and they—I think they're going public. Oh, we had Thomas—we had Thomas Gates on the show too. Yeah.
2: Yeah, they went public uh, this week. That with uh, and it shot through the roof. I mean, the, the yeah. success of the IPO is just unbelievable.
0: But that—that's my point. is As you asked me for examples, and yes, those aren't like direct-to-consumer cancer products or breast mm-hmm. cancer screenings. I also think, you know, if I'm going to go cancer, I forget the name, Colaguard. Is that it's called Colaguard? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, Colaguard's going to market is is been intriguing, and I want to see and watch. I'm kind of like lurking in the shadows to see how they start to do a better job going to market because advertising on the Super at the Super Bowl and the football games—that's that's to get like the. You're going to go after, like, the, the, the bears. Like, those guys are going <laughs> to get out. How do you get at-risk younger people? How do you get communities of color to do that? I'm intrigued at their approach because, to me, that's the first legitimate FDA-approved cancer screening device that you can use. But how do you overcome? I don't want to know. People don't want to know. But you asked me for examples, PillPack, GoodRx, mm-hmm. and colagard Cool. So – you
2: told me I could be your VC girlfriend, but I'm not, yes. I'm not sure it's a good job because you think uh, pretty low uh, things about investor culture. <laughs> What's your problem with the, with the dark side, the investors out there?
0: Uh, I have a sibling who got the money genes in the family. So uh-huh. having nothing to do with that at all, I, <laughs> I don't think about... I'm not a capitalist. I mean, I like money. I like to spend, but who doesn't, right? But at the end of the day, I don't, I don't live to exit and be the richest guy in the cemetery. So I have just this predisposed, inherent jaded nature of acquisitions and points, and I, I don't speak the language. It, it just gets anathema to me, just, just preternatally, But I've seen a lot of these companies, and I'm, again, I'm speaking anecdotally from my experience, 50, 60, 70 startups that have a great product or service that they want cancer patients to know about. And going back to the conversation of, oh, well, you want me to tell... Let's do a radio show advertorial for your product, and we'll throw some money at getting it downstream to our market and see we convert people, not with coupon codes, but with stories and influence from a trusted nonprofit. It's going to cost you a quarter million for six months. Here's our KPI. Here's our, here's our CPMs. Remember CPMs? Oh, we don't have that kind of money. No, we're not going to pay that much. Well, then you're not going to get what you want. Like, if you're going to go buy a full-page ad in Time magazine for this CPM, or going to, how are you expecting to spend money and get people to buy your product? If we have your customers, you're advertising with us. You don't should expect us to do that. So time and again, the conversation came back to, well, our investors don't want us to spend that money that way. And so what do they want you to spend your money on? They want us to spend money on profit. Well, this is means to profit, but you won't know that until you advertise with us and spend that money. So that kept giving me headaches, good headaches, not tumor headaches, years and years and years and years. And I just got so fed up with the fact that investor culture, and I, I hate using swabs. I, there have been plenty of amazing investors. An epic shout-out to Halle Tecco, who I admire and, and genuflect daily upon for what she's done for philanthropy and entrepreneurship. Writ large, though, the, the perspective and perception I have had from my experience is that when you – are investing in a startup that has a great idea and a great product the go-to-market does not include money to be spent as potential risk and loss to decide who your customers and how to reach them that isn't the doctor and it's just this devaluation of what patients as part of nonprofit communities are decommoditized as like we're worthless because we're a charity but then you look at some of the great startups like Inspire and Wego Health, and, and, and you know, they've done a great job in showing that you can have a private sector version of that, but you may have lower quality than that, and more, it's more of a quantitative than qualitative. So how do you balance that out? And, and that's been my, my experience, which is why my company that I'm starting now, I don't want investors. I want to build this organically. And if we have investors, I already know, having run a nonprofit and worked work with 160 nonprofits, the right way to approach a charity is to pay them a lot of money for their access and to partner with them to help them grow. That's David, what's going to meet that need.
1: Looks like you want to jump in, David? Well, I did. I was curious. Tell us about this new company, this off Offscript, off right? What's the idea behind that?
0: The fundamental idea was that I was, I was the Harrodstone shock duck of radio cancer for 14 years, and, and I had the privilege of interviewing... Who's your Baba Booey? You know, his name was Kenny Kane, and shout out to Kenny Kane. Uh, he was my Baba Bowie for maybe 400 episodes. And, and you Robin Quivers? Uh, she uh, sadly passed away. Her name was Annie Goodman.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But she was a, a miracle human being. I miss her to death, uh, Rip Annie Goodman. But that's life in the cancer world. And when I exited Stupid Cancer um, and figured out what, what I want to be when I grow up now, for whatever version of my life This is 17 or 18, I wanted to get behind a mic with purpose and not just be a podcaster. And what I felt was missing off the heels of what the success of the stupid cancer show inured was audio broadcasting as means to education and not transactional entertainment or fly by night. I listened to this, I don't need it again. So in terms of how do you build, how do you almost like entrepreneurially weaponize an audio broadcast, into a company a <laughs> scalable company that was the gist behind off script media and the fundamental question we're trying to answer is when you get when bad things happen to good people you go to the internet but will you ever say is there a podcast for this
1: my my folks talked to me when they were like uh, growing up. There was this radio show. I think it was in Yiddish. It was like Shuris Balidin or whatever. It was like <laughs> uh, exactly. It was a uh, no. It was basically these like tragic stories that they would <laughs> sort of like share with people, and then people would sort of like listen. And I guess well, empathize. the stories are terrible and they're so short. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, but but so I'm, I mean, but but I don't. i obviously didn't think that was the goal of your show. So I'm trying to understand both the audience and the, like who are you expecting to tune in and what do you want them to take away?
0: So this is more than just my podcast, which is called out of patience and it's fun and and it's just gravy. The value we offer to the community is we're creating audio conversations that are listenable and enjoyable. And they're not, where you're not being spoken to you're being spoken at, or you're not, I said that wrong. Like
1: Gimlet. Are you trying to be sort of like the Gimlet for the patient community?
0: Yeah, the elevator pitch isn't that binary. At the end of the day, there's a desire in the health community for unfiltered, raw conversations that people want to listen to, in addition to the doctor knows best, listen to the shows that are out there. And we're filling a white space by talking to people in their language, on their terms, and schoolhouse rocking stuff down into the one-on-ones that they need, and our clients are thrilled that we can be the vendor to produce the content they know they'd suck at doing themselves
2: so are, are the our are patients the podcasters the the, the subjects who, who are they the audience they're everybody in the audience
0: listeners the, the the clients the listeners to our client shows are patients downstream patients that they are making aware of that here's a 10-minute show with matt that will make this suck a little less. And by the way, here's the webinar and here's the non-branded site and here's all the paperwork and here's the complicated stuff. But if you just wanna shut off your brain for 10 or 15 minutes and say, we're sorry you're here, this sucks, but we're here for you and here's five things that we think you should do in partnership with this nonprofit organization, it legitimizes the suckness that they're going through. And it's common language narrative that they're not going to get when they go to WebMD. So Empathy Radio, though. You know what? Um, You're hired.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so who's been your favorite interview so far?
0: Oh, my God. It's so out of left field, but I had the chance to interview one of my music, all-time music heroes, John Tesh.
2: Which sounds like the end of a joke, but okay. Let's no,
0: it. it does I mean, I, I literally, part of my ethnomusicology studies, I studied Vangelis, and I studied Yanni and Enya, and john Tesh, and uh george winston mm-hmm. and they were a part of my curricula in undergraduate and i got to meet john Tesh and talk to this guy of, and we, we just he had cancer we maybe 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 10 minutes of our chat was about cancer and the rest was about like synthesizers in the 70s it was amazing
1: that's awesome do zam fear
0: oh my god the pan flute guy yeah sure
1: <laughs> so it's amazing. well
0: done well done david
2: David, yeah, really, David, David's got a million of them. It's incredible. <laughs> it's amazing to me. And I'm sure David, you would agree that, you know, of, of the many people we've interviewed who are creative entrepreneurs, um, they got their start in music. I mean, there's so many people who have that sort of duality of thinking and there must be some captivating,
1: the, right? The, creativity? Yeah, the creative, yeah. creative
2: process that leads you in those two directions at one time. What do you think that is? What is that? What is it about that?
0: that's not a gotcha journalism question I just don't have an answer to that that question (laughs) and part of it's nature nurture Um, most of my friends that I'm still in touch with from the uh, to channel my inner unity the the golden days right the Medina days are musicians and we're not musicians anymore we have lives and kids and things to do
1: hey Bruce uh, Springsteen had an album just had dropped a new album at 71 so uh, yeah anything's
0: possible (laughs) <laughs> I, don't, I I feel like music and math and creativity go together and and mm-hmm. how it's harnessed and who you surround yourself with and again, we the the joke around like social determinants of health right one of those determinants is who sat next to you in high school that happened to be your best friend thirty years later right That's very yeah. true. so that is one of my determinants. I happen to be lucky and fortunate to meet incredible people. I went to a great school. I met more incredible creative people. And the best part of being creative is you always want to feel like someone's better than you, which keeps you vying to be better.
2: So, Matthew, I want to close out this interview by playing a sample from Simplicity. Oh, dear. Uh, the piece you said is the favorite that you composed yourself. What was the inspiration for that?
0: Okay, so during the fall of 1995, when I was fully ripped up with symptoms before I was diagnosed, I was continuing to compose and write music for orchestra and the jazz ensemble and brass quintet and just my usual programs, my my usual studies. And as my left hand officially stopped working, I would write down ideas with my right hand. And then I went home and I got tested and I had surgery. And I was in the hospital for seven days. And that was the longest I'd ever gone in my life having not played piano. Seven straight days without a piano. And my left hand wasn't working, my right hand was fine. I got home from the hospital on January 19th, 1996. It was Saturday. And I walked in the house Barely, because I was the shell of a human being at that point. And I sat down at the piano, and I realized I didn't have an orchestra to write for. I didn't have a brass quintet, a jazz band. I, I had nothing to write for except myself. So with my right hand, and only my right hand, I had this melody show up in the moment, which became the motif for simplicity. And that motif was what got me through the next three years and helped me rehabilitate my left hand to the best that I could trying to play as much as possible because God knows the system didn't care that I was a pianist and offered me rehab. I just had to do it myself. But the opening melody to Simplicity. That's it. I wrote that the day I got home from the hospital and it became the first song that I wrote post brain surgery and led me to write the entire album Scribblings two years later of music that I wrote for not dying as a present to myself that cancer couldn't take one thing away from me.
2: You. It's just It's been a wonder to have you on today, such a joy, yeah. and I'm glad that we got a chance to be introduced. We have so much, so many friends in common, it's, it's great to, uh, to
0: connect with it's you. It's almost unfair that we know so many cool people. <laughs> uh, I feel the
1: same way about Lisa, so...
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Today's hey. guest, Matthew Zachary, was speaking to us from his hometown of New York City. Wow, I, what an
1: amazing person, huh? Kind of a force of nature type of guy, huh? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know about force of nature, but he's so, uh, I mean, more than that in a way. Um, I mean, not just someone who's obviously strong to endure what he's done, but so, um, I guess we can say high energy and just, it seems full of life. Like whatever cancer did, it didn't rob him of that. And like, For if sure. anything, it seemed to have like, you know, uh, maybe redoubled or whatever they would I mean, it would be. And it would sound yeah. trite, except that he's, you know, really um just living and it's a it's a beautiful thing it's so
2: funny i mean if you were that close to dying would you choose health tech as the thing you'd spend your life doing
1: well even to his very point about like how you can understand how like sometimes when people are sick the last thing they want to do is be reminded of it every day and he's kind of taking that on recognizing i mean explicitly that um you know it sucks to be that sick and it sucks to be reminded of it more or less to quote him and that's what he does. So, you know, God bless. Yeah, for sure. So
2: you can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech at the Timmerman Report. And please remember to give us a review on iTunes if you like the show.
1: And you can follow the exceptional, inimitable, Lisa Sunin's writings at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Benet, Phelps, and Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. Take care.
2: Take care.